Hi, everyone. I'm Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the road to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. I want to start this week by thanking you all so much for the love for last week's episode for Rachel Morrison. Isn't she amazing? I loved, many of you pointed out it was the perfect episode to air during Pride Month, and you're right, and I am sorry that I didn't mention that. But listen, when you love an episode, I totally appreciate the feedback, but also please tell other people. We're trying to spread the word about the show. You guys have given me such amazing feedback. I love getting your notes. I love getting your messages. I love getting your reposts on Instagram. Share it with me and share it with everybody else too. This week, we have my business coach who's amazing, Julie Ciardi. She's a certified life coach as well. She spent 20 years in the corporate world as the VP of marketing for IBM and left it all behind to change her life. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the pros and cons of the word mindset, which can be a super triggering word in the infertility world. And we're going to talk about what it was like to have one life with one husband and an easy time having children, and then a different life with a new husband and a new sense of reality and what it was like to try to continue to grow her family. So here is Julie Ciardi. I'm so happy that you're here. I feel like it's so great that you're here on International Day of the Woman. Obviously, this is not going to air on International Day of the Woman, but like you are all about women's empowerment. So this is like perfection. I love it. I'm so excited. I am too. And really, your infertility story is not something you talk about very often. So thank you for opening up with me. Yeah. So I'd love to just get into it. You went through kind of secondary, really tertiary infertility. We sometimes talk about secondary, and I don't think it gets nearly enough attention. But you hit a roadblock on your third child. And I'd love you to just tell your story from the very beginning, including what your plan was when your first two kids came around. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, what's interesting, right, is for me, it was tertiary, but for my husband, it was his first child. So it was interesting for us to go through through a little bit of backdrop. I was married initially to my first two children's dad, and I was 29 when I had them, 29 and 31. And it was... No problem. Got pregnant fast, all things. But we got divorced when they were like four and two years old. And the good news there, a whole other whole other podcast episode is that we decided that even though it wasn't working out between the two of us, that we were going to co-parent those kids like nobody's business. And we knew we were going to be in each other's lives forever. And we are. And luckily, we stuck to that because those older kids now are 19 and 17 and their dad and I are very, very close. So it's very special. But I did get remarried. I got remarried when Jack and Caroline were six and four. So they were that age. And I met my husband and we got married. And we knew let's that just we call wanted him, to... let's call him Joe, Joe shall we? Okay. <laughs> so I met Joe and we got married like about the next year. Like it was about a year and a half, two years. We got married. He was 36 and I was 34. But when we got married, I want to say he was like 38 and I was 35. And so when we decided that we wanted to have a baby, you know, and really complete the family, there was, for me, being a mom to these other two wonderful children, I really believed that, I just felt it in my inside that 
if we were fortunate enough to have another child, it would really be this glue to kind of pull us together. And, and it really has been, but I just felt this desire. I knew I was, I never felt like I was done. I really wanted to have another baby. And it was such a different process. <laughs> it was wild. Let me, let me even, I want to <laughs> even ask you, right. I mean, yeah. it was, I want to even ask you when you started having children, did you already know you wanted more than two? Like, I think for people going through infertility, a huge piece of the of the pain comes from sort of maybe having to let go of what you pictured your family looking like. So yeah. when you were married to your first husband, I like to call it a husband. When you were married yeah. to your husband, did you guys talk about how many kids you wanted before marriage? And then when you met Joe and decided to marry him, had you guys had that conversation or were you like, let's just wait and see? Yeah, what that's such a, that's a great question. So the first one... I always thought I always wanted to have more than two children. I grew up in a family with my brother and I, and I just, you know, would observe other families. And so I kind of had this, this romantic idea that I wanted to have a bigger family. Like I definitely did, but my husband, not so much. Like two, it was like two was, that was it. So that was even part of some of the discussions that kind of just led to our ultimate decisions. When I met Joe, he definitely wanted to have a child. And so we knew that that was something he, cause you know, for him, he'd never been married and he, you know, had no children and he loved Jack and Caroline, of course, but he did. He wanted, he really wanted to have a child together. So did I. So we, we kind of knew that from the very beginning and before we ever then decided we were going to start trying. Okay. And so you start yeah. trying and you're over 35 yeah. at this point. Yes. And what happens? So, you know, it was interesting because it happened so fast with Jack and Caroline that I just had this expectation like, well, yeah, it's fine. It'll happen again. And then it didn't. And it's interesting. And I don't know, it's such an interesting thing. And I'm sure some of your listeners will, you know, have dealt with this, but it was almost we had, like we have two like kind of alpha type of people. <laughs> my my <laughs> yes. husband, Joe, and I, it kind of created this. I'm almost like, well, it's not me. Right. It can't be me. Yes. Right. <laughs> like we both had right. a bit of that. And and there was, you know, it was like, which is ridiculous. But it was there. It was there, you know. And so we had to go through all we, we were trying and we weren't getting pregnant. And so I don't want to say, I think we tried for it might have been like seven or eight months. And while that doesn't seem like it's that long, knowing that you know, so we five now turning 36, you know, the whole thing, we decided, you know, we were just gonna go and start figuring out what was going on. And so we had to do all the tests, right? To see like what was going on, where, where, you know, was it, you know, my side, his side. And so, you know, for me, my factor was simply my age. Everything mm-hmm. seemed to be okay, but you never know either. But like everything seemed to be checking right. out. But unfortunately, he had very, very, very low sperm count. And Mm. which in some ways is kind of a relief when you find that out because you know at least what you need to target to manage. 100%. And what's fascinating, I haven't haven't talked about this in so long. It's like I'm remembering some of these like crazy conversations that were really hard and like powerful. Like I can remember at the time, it was really interesting. He was a police officer. He was a police officer. He's retired. But there was only like 90 something police officers in this one police department and like so many couples we knew were going to the same fertility clinic as us wow. with, with the same issues. So it's interesting, right? Like some of the environmental, we don't know. But I can remember the insurance 
only covered IUI. And we went to this doctor. I'll never forget. I actually stormed out of the room <laughs> because I was so upset with his demeanor. Like how, because yeah. we were with, you know who we were meeting with? We weren't meeting with a fertility person at this point. We were meeting with a urologist. With a urologist, yeah. Mm-hmm. And needless to say, the bedside manner, not great probably dealing with guys all the time, right? And so we're sitting in this room and I can still forget. I remember it was like it was yesterday because I had a a Boston baseball cap on and I live in New York. So that's always a comment. And so this doctor, (laughs) we're here to talk about like, can we have a baby or not, right? And he's like giving me a hard time about my Boston hat. That just sent me off on the, you know, the wrong, Mm -hmm. the wrong course. But then he basically just said, he's like, so nothing is going to work unless you do in vitro with ICSI, right? Which is like literally taking the act, they handpick the sperm and the egg and literally do the work, do all of the work in the lab, right? And I was like, like the the way that he said it, the way he kind of dropped that on us after we had already been starting the whole IUI. So I'd been down that journey of taking the meds to ovulate to do the IUI treatments, right? And, and really quickly, did you do that? Yeah. Did you go down that route because you had already met with the RE, the reproductive endocrinologist, and they were like, this is the it. first step. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the RE got you started on that before even getting the talk from the urologist. That's interesting. So low sperm counts one thing, but mm-hmm. then on top of that, it was the quality of the actual sperm on top sperm, of it. Like that, the morphology, that yeah. I've forgotten some of these terms now. It's been a while. Yeah, so that's okay. I... That's what we kind of went back. We were trying to figure out what we were like. The IUIs weren't working. Mm-hmm. Now we know, obviously, after of meeting course, this guy right. and kind of dropping it on us, he's like, yeah, that won't work. Mm-hmm. Like, it would have been nice to know that. So just, again, just not having all the information, taking hormones, doing these things to do the IUIs that were actually had a very, like, almost no way it was going to even work. It was just very traumatic, you know, just to be going yeah. through that process, continuing to get my period, the ups and downs of that. You know, I've got two other kids, you know, and just, I was sad. And I just, I was so frustrated, you know, that once I found out that, oh yeah, that will never work. What happened for us was that we had to wait until we could switch insurance so that we could start to get it covered because it was so much money. And now we're going a whole other level, you know, with doing the ICSI and all of those things. So, just that whole process of figuring out what was going on and what was going to be the right path. And who knows, maybe things have gotten so much better. I mean, this is nine years ago, eight years ago. Yeah. I mean, when we had him, it was like 11 years ago. So I'm assuming things have gotten a bit better, but just to like have the urologist here, the, you know, the reproductive, you know, people that we're working with here and just feeling like, we didn't get the right diagnosis, you know, in the beginning. Right. And that just, it caused a lot of emotional ups and downs that were completely unnecessary, putting stuff right. in my body that I mean, wasn't necessary. That's what's so infuriating is like, what we always say is we don't know what we don't know. Like you can sit here now and say, well, of course it didn't work, duh, after we, right? You had no clue. So you're at the sort of behest of these people guiding you without knowing if what they're saying is actually the course that you should take. And when it's a medical professional, you mostly trust them. Because why wouldn't you, right? 
Why wouldn't you? And then exactly. it's one thing when you're doing the treatment, it doesn't work, but to learn that you're doing the treatment, it doesn't work. And you probably didn't really even need to do it because it was a waste of time, money, and emotional expenditure. Like that mm-hmm. is infuriating. Infuriating. Okay. It's like, yeah. Okay. So how are you and Joe doing with this together at this point? Are you like frustrated with each other? And also when you like, were you telling the kids, your older kids that you were trying? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because we kept this. We decided to really keep it between us. Even with Jack and Caroline, you know, they would hear enough just, you know, how everyone is everywhere we go. People are like, so, oh my... And I know I'm I'm saying things that your listeners have heard a thousand times and I know you probably did too, but it's just like the way things are said, it can be so frustrating. You know, basically on those like, why aren't you guys having a baby? Right. You know, but like, yeah, like looking at you, like you should totally have a baby. It'll complete your family. All these things. I'm like, really? Like, it's uh, just amazing what people say. And of course, this was all happening behind the scenes. And it was, it was hard. And in fact, there was a couple of comments from some family members the opposite way that were like, oh, well, you wouldn't go and have more kids now, would you? That would be right. Like, crazy. why would you want to start all over again? Right. Yep. You have why would you want to start all over again? This is crazy. You're finally out. So between that mantra that was happening and then the other like side of it of like, oh my God, you guys should totally be having kids. We really decided, and we're very open people, very open people, but we just decided to keep this just between us as we were going through it. And we really didn't tell anybody. The kids were little, you know, they, when we first started going through everything, they were, I think like eight and six. And so they would hear people saying things too, you know, and like, and we just kind of say, yeah, it'd be nice. We'll see what happens, you know, kind of just like, you know, and they didn't know what trying meant because they didn't even know how to have a baby (laughs) at all. Right. So we just kind of like, you know, we're kind of dealing with that and we just kind of kept very limited people in it. Like we, I remember going to a baseball game and I had to go in the bathroom and stick my abdomen with needles yeah. and all whatever. Yeah. So, you know, his sister and like his sister-in-law knew a little bit. And so we just just very small number of people knew what we were doing. But I really am glad that we chose to do that because it's hard enough and mm-hmm. the comments and all the things. And we didn't want people asking us how's it going and all that, you know, and everyone's different. Some people, you know, are super open. I had a couple of people that had been through the process. So I really kind of kept them on speed dial and just asking a lot of questions because, you know, anytime you go through something you've never been through before, you need help, you know, and I love mm-hmm. our, you know, the fact that we've got medical professionals, but it's more than that. You know, you really right. need more than that. You need that Someone experience. Someone that's been through it. Yeah. You know, and what happened was once we realized we needed to do ICSI and we needed to do at that level, we were very fortunate that everything kind of went fairly smooth from that point on because like to be able to pick out the, I would say the The, best swimmer. Yeah. Perfect swimmer. And physically put it into the egg. egg. Mm -hmm. But even then it was like, I think we had like seven Fertilized or embryos? Fertilized eggs. Uh Four made it. Right. And then we sent them off for analysis and genetic testing and all of that. Two were not viable, two were. And we found out it was a girl and a boy. Uh And if I have one, like if I could go back and just do it one thing differently, I would have tried to put them in separately and maybe have had two. I don't know. Like they, They made the recommendation of put both in. 
Wow. So again, you just kind of go off of like, you, you know, right. you're just working with, you don't know. Which is so ironic because today they would never do that. I mean, and you're talking to somebody that has twins. So you know what they did in my situation, but I was like an anomaly because they would barely hard. Mine was like my eighth round. They finally put multiples in, right? They would never do that with two tested embryos. So in some ways it would have been amazing if you had twins, but health wise, you're probably pretty lucky that it worked out the way that it did. Yes. Yeah. So I wish I kind of had waited and maybe had two. And it's funny because, you know, Joe will say it too. Like, we'll say, oh, like, you know, I wonder what she would have been like, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. But the interesting thing is like a a little bit of the punchline and then we'll go back to unpack more of it. But the funny thing is hand selecting the swimmer, they literally cloned my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. My case who is just her nine. I mean, it is like he is his clone, not just from how he looks, but their taste buds, their demeanors, their preferences. Like it's unbelievable. It's like unbelievable. And I, you know, that's the the strength of the genes there, I guess, right? That's right. They pick the most potent ones. They pick the most fun one. But it was the the other, I'm trying to think about some other things with the the actual pregnancy. I remember feeling just, it was such a different feeling than when I was pregnant with Jack and Caroline. Like when I was pregnant with Jack and Caroline, it kind of had like the normal worries about things, you know, like, you know, okay, so the baby's okay, but everything's all right. You go to every, you go to like the couple of checkups. I mean, like, especially Caroline's 19, Jack's 17, and I wasn't over 35. I literally went for like one ultrasound. Right. Which was like at like one, 20 weeks. 20 right? weeks. Yeah. Isn't that insane? That's it. And it was just different. I, you know, it was very different. With with Keeson, you had like the kind of like the double, like me being over 35. And then also they really wanted to monitor everything. And so we had so many ultrasounds with him, which was kind of cool. And then there was right. 3D, which we never had with Jack and Caroline. But there was just, it was a lot more fear. Even like, I'll back up for a second too, because I'm just remembering another another piece. Like I can remember, and we and we were we were very fortunate. We only had to do one round of that. We did all those IUIs that were fruitless yeah. and not even right. needed. And then we did one round of IVF and it did work, which is amazing. But I can remember like just the stress of how everything needs to go uh, like perfectly. And we, so we had the two embryos. We were getting ready. We we're going to do the transfer. I had to drive. We had to drive an hour and a half every time we went to see the our reproductive. Whoa. Yeah, it was Were like you driving crazy. into the city? Were you driving into New no, York City? No, it was just north of the city, but like it okay. was a solid, like it was an hour and a half. Wow. So you had all that. And you go in. Just pin that because I want to get back to that later yeah. too. I have many questions about that. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're lining? No, it's nowhere. This is like a couple of days before. I'm like, what? Like, like, I'm doing it. And it was like so stressful. And I don't know what made me do it, but someone had mentioned it. And I just said, you know what? I'm I'm ready to try anything at this point. And I I booked an appointment with an acupuncturist. And I said, whatever you got to do. I'm like, yeah, I have five days. Yeah, I need to carry a baby. Yeah. (laughs) We need to get this thick. And wouldn't, you know, like she did that and just hoping it was all going to play out. We went for the day because you don't even know until you show up that day. Yeah. You showed up, 
they said it was clear to be able to do the transfer, Thank which God. was pretty amazing. Because I had to take care of the, the kids, like to be able to go right. to it, all of that. So it was just, it was hard. But from the most part, other than kind of just being extra concerned, kind of every step of the way, because of all the monitoring and all of that kind of stuff, you know, I had one episode of bleeding that like freaked me out because I never bled with Caroline. And, yeah. and it was like six o'clock at night. And they're like, well, we'll see you at like, 6.30 in the morning no. the next day. So we leave at 5 a.m. to go out the hour and a half. And I can just, that whole night, like I remember there was a party, a graduation party in the neighborhood. And Joe's like, well, I'll go. I'm like, oh, here. I just like, I remember like having my feet up and just sobbing, like, just like, please oh. God, you know, like it was just awful, right. you know. You make like, all the deals, yeah. like whatever all you need deals. me to do, I'll do. Like whatever, you know, all the deals. For me, like with my body being mm-hmm. like, God, like I've been very fortunate because I hate exercise that like I've been one of those people until I hit 40 that like didn't have to do a ton of exercise and stayed in really good shape. And I remember always making a deal with God about my body, like do whatever you need to do to my body. I don't care if I become obese, just give me the babies. You know, like you make all these insane, irrational deals with God. Okay. So was it just like, was it a hematoma? Was it a, it was nothing serious, obviously. It was nothing. Yeah. It was nothing serious. I think that's what it was. I think that, yes, that's what Chorionic hematoma, yeah. Which, again, it's like, I don't want them to scare you. And at the same time, I do wish they kind of mentioned that those are pretty common, especially in IVF, because it happens so often and people freak out, understandably. I mean, you see blood, like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, it's so interesting. Like, that's why I love what you do. Because when you're doing something that you've never done before in your life, it's you, yourself, and you. Like, you don't know. And it's like, you're kind of like, you just don't know what to expect. And while I love doctors and these amazing people that can help make this happen, they're not in our mind and heart. And like, not thinking about how to best prepare someone, you know, it's like, when you work with someone who is like working with a lot of women, so they have their own experience, but they're working with a lot of women, you start to see like almost the behind the scenes on the emotional side on what it, because we don't, we're not all sharing that when we go into the doctor. Right. We're like putting on our best face and like, let's go, let's do this. And it's just having having someone that can help you set expectations of like, hey, this is perfectly normal. This is not like, if I had, if I had you back then, yeah. I wouldn't have been sitting there. That's the, the on sobbing, the house, the 12 hours of sobbing. Sobbing for 12 hours. Yes, yeah, right. And, I mean, you know, and the last thing you want to do is Google stuff. No, and that's even worse now than it was then. <laughs> it's horrible. Such exactly. a rabbit hole. You don't want to do that. And it's just such a process that I think back and I almost can't remember other things during that time, if that makes yes. sense. Like, yeah, like it becomes your full time thinking. Does. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I feel like even for the older kids, like, I'm like, hmm, I don't like that year. Well, I'm or thinking two, to myself, like, like, you had to leave your house at 5 a.m. Like, were your kids with you that weekend or day or whatever? Or were they, they were. With dad, and I right? had to have a sitter come over. Luckily, great relationship with their dad. Yes. And he knew what was going on. Okay. And so he, because we had to, because of all the trips and the different things. And he was like, no problem. Like, I'll come over. So, like, he came over Amazing. early to be with them. Thank God. Because you do, you need, especially if it's, secondary or tertiary, whatever, like you've got got this other 
child now or children right. that you're, you know, and so it's, yeah, it was quite, I don't, re- but I'm thinking back, I'm like, wow, I really don't remember a lot of other things from yeah. that time. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. So to that end, like part of what we talk about here is managing your successful career that was booming at the time and it's still booming when we get into that, but how you were able to manage Tell everybody what you were doing at that time and how you like, how were you able to do an hour and a half trip to a doctor? Like, then did you have to jump on a train and go to work? Yeah. Well, luckily, I, luckily, so I was at the time, because after I had Kaysen, it's when I got promoted to vice president, but I was an executive. I was a director of marketing at IBM. So I had a very like crazy job, very fortunate where I know that so many people are experiencing what it's like to work from home now, but back yeah. then it was very rare. It was a very bizarre thing. And for some reason, IBM was just this company that were totally cool with working remotely unless you had to travel. So if I had to do that on top of that, it would have been really, really challenging too. And so I really, a lot of love for those that are balancing a commute and being in an office on top of all of that. I was mostly from home, but I had a very rigorous calendar. So it was usually nine to 10 hours a day of back-to-back meetings on Zoom, on phone, like really, really challenging. And so I had that job while I was going through this at the same time with the kids, you know, with fairly a new marriage too, by the way, you know, so you're like kind of balancing all these things. But yeah, the job was, I'm thankful that I got to mostly be home, but it was just on my mind all the mm-hmm. time, you know, yes. and it just takes up so much of your mental and, and emotional capacity yeah. that I'm surprised, I'm surprised I even ended up doing as well as I did in that, you know, couple of years yeah. that, you know, I was there, but yeah, that was, that was challenging. You know, they just did a study. I don't remember what the exact number is, but like people going through it who are in executive positions said something like, they do 72% less productivity while going through infertility treatment. I mean, it's something like that where now we're starting to measure those numbers, which is why I'm like every company needs to have a fertility coach on their team to just help troubleshoot all of this. 100% because when I think about that, it's the mental space that gets, there's emotional and then there's mental yeah. and they're, they're yes. different kinds of things. And I agree. Like, I think the whole process would have been very different had I had, especially now that I really know what like a mindset coach, a life coach, like what a coach can do. I would have so heavily valued that because the only thing I had was I would reach out to my one friend who had gone through IVF and her experience was totally different than mine and Google. And even then it was still different. It was like, there were like these hubs or chat groups or something. Yeah. I forget what they were Which called. Are awful. And, oh my God. Like it was talk about yeah. I would get sucked into some and then I'd yes. be more depressed after. And it yes. was just And you're spinning about things that like you weren't even thinking about until you read it on somebody else's review 100%. or chat or whatever. Yeah. I know. 100%. It's and it's like you don't want to be thinking like, oh, the, the bottom line and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, with so many people going through this having a support system to help in the moments, right? Because it's in the moments. Exactly. Like you don't know what's going to trigger something or you're going to get a call that you don't want to yep. get, right? I remember like yep. waiting at the edge of oh, my yeah. seat, waiting to find out were any of the embryos viable. Right. Right. And so when you're like, it's just, I, I agree. I totally. think having and it's, more support. It's, it's like exactly what you're saying. I'm. It's even bringing me back to like, 
my doctors would always call it like 3.30 or 4 p.m., right? You always had an afternoon meeting. I would be like, okay, thanks. And then like run out into the bathroom, hysterics, you know. It's like when you're in a Fortune 500 company, you can't not have a support system for that, you know? I agree 100%. So I want to transition just to talk quickly about you said something about mindset work, which is you're like helping me segue every step of the way. I wanted to talk about mindset in general and then specifically in terms of what you're doing now because the word mindset was very triggering for me during my infertility. And I know that it's very triggering for people going through it now. So I want to sort of unpack that yeah. and like talk about what mindset means to you now and maybe what the stigma at the time or before you were doing all the work you're doing on mindset, what it meant to you then. Well, the, where it, it's super triggering is like when it's just think positive and right. it's all going to be okay. And it's all, like, it's what's meant to be is meant to be. That's total not BS. Right. total, that's total BS. And that's not what I mean by mindset. What I do mean by mindset and I, what it's funny, there's so many different philosophies right out there. I look at it as it's not just your thoughts. I really look at it as your thoughts and your feelings combined. It's kind of like your overall vibration, your overall way of being. And it's not about trying to pretend that everything's okay and pushing things down and all of that. It's no, it's actually meeting it head on, to be honest, right? It's okay that maybe the thoughts and the feelings that you're having are really hard. And that's okay. I think what the problem is, is when we try to think we have to be positive and, and even worse, that if you're not thinking positive, that that could actually then have a detrimental outcome. Impact. Exactly. Because like, that puts no, so no, much no. pressure. Right. And mm-hmm. I think anybody that's been through infertility will tell you that puts so much pressure on you because, and it just makes you spiral. Cause then you're like, oh my God, I'm not thinking the right thing. And now I'm not thinking about the right thing that I'm not thinking yeah. about the right thing. Right. And that's what we start to think mindset is like, well, totally. I'm not in the right mindset and that's, what's going to do it. And that is not what's going to do it. No. And really what you're about and what I, I mean, you know, that I love a million things about you, but one of the things I love about you and what I'm learning from you is the self-awareness is everything. So just to live in the self-awareness and being able to identify when the mindset is really bad is half the battle because it's like, yeah. look, I can't change it right now. I am in the shits of it right now and there's just nothing I can do, but I know that. And so I'm going to eventually work to X, Y, Z. Like that is such a crucial piece of it, of the mindset work. Totally. And when I think about the idea of working on your mindset, I think of it as actually learning how to have immense compassion for yourself. Because what happens is, is that, I mean, I experienced it. I had comments and opinions coming from all over the place. I was putting pressure on myself of like how I needed to show up. I mean, I can remember even being like, because I had not done a lot of the inner work at that time. <laughs> yeah, And so I still had very strong people-pleasing parts of me, like big time where like now I it's so different. But back then, yeah, that shocks I don't me. Wanna, that shocks me yeah, actually. I'd want to people-please the doctors and people-please, like, you know what I'm saying? It was like, so I wasn't just allowing myself to be the way I needed to be in the moment. And I would be thinking I was even doing that wrong. So to me, it's not about always thinking positive and you got to like, no, it's about the awareness and the compassion that it's okay 
to feel this way or to speak up and say these things. Or we don't even realize that sometimes it's some of our paradigms, our beliefs that have just always been in there. I'm proud of myself because I do feel like one way I stepped out of how I would typically be in a situation where I, I did show up differently was the not telling people. Like I, at that time still felt like I kind of needed to tell my parents everything. Like I just kind of, we just kind of grew up always talking and sharing things. And I was like, no, this is not something I want to talk about with them. And that might, that people please. And I never, I'll never forget after it was all said and done and we had KSM, I told Joe, I'm like, whatever you do, like, don't ever like say we deliberately weren't right. So of course we're at dinner one night and <laughs> Joe says something <laughs> like to my mom. Yeah. Well, that's, one of the reasons we didn't want to tell you or something like that, that we're going to, and I'm like, <laughs> no, no, no. Like and kicking him under the table. It was like this big argument and all these things. And, but it, ha- having that not had happened, that showed me like that to me, that was managing my mindset. Does this make sense? Like yes. I stepped out of my typical patterns to actually have more compassion for myself than to people please anyone else, because that's what I knew I needed to do. So to me, managing your mindset is actually having that awareness. So I had that awareness that I am typically the kind of person that is going to tell everyone what's going on. And I knew that that was not going to be the right move. And I had the self-awareness to work through, is that okay? Well, you know what? I'm not going to do it. And then I, and it was the right decision. So it's very complex. It's not about thinking positive thoughts. It's about managing your awareness of yourself. Because here's the thing. When we feel like a total victim too, on top of everything, it really makes us powerless. And no matter what is the current situation, we do have some power in us. Even if the power is just to love ourselves during this really hard time. Like it's that, it's that compassion. And also, had I been doing this work back then, I think I would have had a lot more compassion too with Joe. I think mm-hmm. even just my awareness of how this was impacting him because... Feeling guilty, feeling... Email, like, because I had yeah. a little bit of... I was a little annoyed. Why do I have to take all the drugs? I have to do all this yeah, stuff, right? And like, so that caused like that... like So again not having that awareness that I was letting go of my power by indulging in that. Like I could think that for a second, but at the same, like, is that serving me? Is that serving me to continue to have the thought and hold it against them that like, wait a minute, why am I the one that's getting, right? It, it didn't. So it's just having that compassion, having that awareness around yourself. Is that, is certain behavior serving you? Is it not right. trying to get that help? But we can't see the end of our own nose. And that's where it's right. so helpful to work with a coach because- That's the job of a coach is to help us see things we can't see. And even to drive it home even further, like something I talk about all the time with my clients, and I know you do as well, is living by design and not by default. So choosing not to share the information with your parents feels like you are in control of that piece of it instead of by default, hiding it and working to keep it quiet because you're not sure if you should say something, right? And with my clients, I try to find each place where we can take any of this in control because so much of it is out of control, we should. So if that makes you feel like I'm choosing to ride the path this way instead of all this other crap that's happening to me, that also takes you out of the victimhood. And that is a huge part of the mindset piece, I think as well. I love that. 
That's so true. I think you're right because there's things we cannot control. So what can we control and how do we want to show up? How do we want that to be with all of the rest of this out of our control? Right. Totally. I I love that. Okay. So I know we have like really just one minute left. And I also know you love like quotes, mantras. Give us one that comes into your head often that you like to live by. Well, I, I mean, you kind of shared it. I mean, it's this live by design and not by default. And so live by design, not by default is that's it. It's a way of being able to look at life, not as a victim, but as an empowered human being, which we all are, no matter what the circumstances are around us, as hard as they may be, we still get choice. And we get choice in choosing how we want to show up in a situation. We get to decide to live by design. Now, are there things that are happening to us that we feel like we have no control? Of course there are. The key is which ones are actually fact and we have no control and which ones are just stories that we're telling ourselves. And that live by design, not by default, I think completely changed my life over the last six, almost seven years now for the better. I left IBM from where I live to what I do for a living to growing out my hair, it's natural gray to whatever it is. It was all like, I get to decide. Hmm, Like, I get to decide. These are things I get to choose and do it on purpose rather than the way I think it's supposed to be or should be. So that one's my favorite. Live by design, not by default. It's my favorite too. I love it. I love it. Julie, thank you so much. Julie's my business coach. She's amazing. If you want to work with her, go find her. And I love you and thank you. And I love that we're twins today. We're twinning. Thank you so much for being here, Julie. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Julie, for coming on the pod. And thank you, everybody else, for listening to The Fertility Check. Listen, at the time of air, when this episode comes out, we will have just marked the one-year anniversary of the Roe v. Wade overturn, also known as the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court. And ASRM, which is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, wrote a beautiful piece or statement about what life is like a year later. So I just want to end on the note of reading that statement and really understanding what the consequences of this are. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but they said it so articulately and so succinctly that I wanted to share. In the meantime, please continue to follow us at The Fertility Chick, at Abby Feeder, at InCircle Fertility. All of Julie's information is going to be linked out. And here's the statement from ASRM. Since the Dobbs decision, we have seen one legislative body after another strip away this basic human right. Access to necessary treatments in reproductive medicine, including abortion, management of miscarriage, and gender-affirming care are being haphazardly revoked by elected officials more concerned with pandering to a select group of voters than in understanding and addressing the medical needs of their constituents. Moreover, policymakers in many states are failing to exercise the care and careful approach to lawmaking that every American should expect from elected officials like understanding basic medical terminology and heeding expert advice to avoid unintended, harmful consequences. Keep that in mind when you vote this year, people. See you next week.